there, folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're cruising through this book of Genesis. going to take a little while. I hope you're okay with that. Christianity in Genesis. I think I've explained this as where do we see the person and work of Christ and also by extension those who live and believe in him, his church, his people, his bride, his body. And there's quite a lot to do here, especially in these first three chapters. I'm going to just limit myself to one podcast on each of these chapters, 1, 2, and 3. Probably do that for for the rest of the book, but nonetheless, the point is you can really do a lot with these first three chapters. We're going to talk a little bit first about this fall here. We're going to jump right in because there's plenty to do. Uh, Such a rich chapter, and uh, for the Christian faith, very rich witness to what it is like in the church of all times and places. It starts already with this serpent. I'll just read the first verse here, and it goes like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? One thing that's totally striking about this narrative is just where the serpent, where the, who is the serpent? Where did he come from? All of a sudden, it's even, even if you look at the Hebrew grammar there, it's emphasizing that here, here's the serpent. And that has an effect. Now, later in the Bible, we'll learn a little bit more about Satan as a fallen angel, Satan uh, possessing or embodying the serpent and so on. Uh, But right now, the effect, I mean, when you just read through the narrative of Genesis, it's whammo, here he is. And that is also the story in Christianity, as in the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There he is, all of a sudden, and he's attacking the faith. I don't know if I, well, you can see it in in verse 1 here. He's questioning God's word. He's attacking God's word. It's a converse. He uses speech. So he uses the word to attack the word, the word, God's word. I don't know if I mentioned it last time. I don't think I did. But for Luther, the Christian church, again, we're talking Christianity and Genesis. The Christian church started in the Garden of Eden and actually... Guess where the altar was, the pulpit and the font, he called it, church, altar, and pulpit, was actually the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That might be a little bit different than what we're used to, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why did God allow that tree? Didn't he know how it was going to go down and all these sorts of things? For Luther, it was the best thing in all of creation, precisely because God's word was attached to it. Yeah, you might not understand everything about why can I not eat this tree or what is death? And we talked about some of these things last time, but his word was attached to it. And we would have gathered, Luther says, they would have gathered around this this tree on the Sabbath day. They would have given thanks to God, praised God for this command, his word that's given about this tree, as in not to eat of it. They would have obeyed by not eating of it, and they would have offered sacrifices. They would have, you know, studied the catechism and sang hymns and things like that. So the serpent attacks God's word. The serpent attacks God's place of worship. The serpent attacks the liturgy. The serpent attacks uh, in very subtle ways as well. He says to the woman, now, of course, we got Adam and Eve, but uh, Adam was the one who got the original command. So Eve is one step removed, however you look at that. 
she's one step removed. And so then it's kind of like, wait, did she get it wrong? And then did Adam tell her wrong? And she's just faithfully reproducing what Adam said? Or did Adam get it wrong? And Or did Eve get it wrong? Adam was, you know, whatever the case. He he does this attack in subtle ways. He does it on God's word. Did God actually say, this is the attack on the Christian church of all times and places. Did God actually say that that was a sin, for example? Did God actually say um, that you're forgiven without earning it or working for it? Give me time. I'll make it make it up to you. You know, that kind of thing. Did God actually say it's the blood of Christ that cleanses all? You know, he attacks, he attacks the word. He also makes God out to be a big negative meanie pants. Did God say the command was you can eat of everything except for this one? And the question is framed, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. It's framed in the negative. Like God is all about just saying no to us instead of, on the flip side, providing wondrously and bountifully and giver of all good gift more things that we could ever possibly know. I mean, that collect, right? That collect in the church gives us more than what we'd ask or even realize we know or things that we, we don't even need we know. So he phrases it in the negative. And then, you know, the other thing, too, is that temptation in Christianity entertains it. Eve could have just not said anything or deferred to the husband, right? Adam, you want to take this? And we'll learn later. Hey, come on, Adam, you're right there. You're standing. Why don't you step in? Hey, hey, honey, honey, I got this. I got this. But temptation is such that you entertain it. The woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Some have pointed out here, and maybe you already know this, this thing about don't touch it, that's not exactly, he didn't say anything about touching it, and you shall not eat of the, you know, uh, lest you die, as in there's like a chance you'll die. No, you will surely die. That's the word. So she's not, and by the way, the tree has a name. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but she says it's the one in the midst of the garden. So there's all sorts of things that are a little bit wrong here. And that's the point of temptation is that it, well, maybe God didn't say that thing about that sin. And then the next step is maybe he said something close to it, like, you know, it's okay if times are really tough and you're really stressed out or something like that. And then it's the whammo. The serpent says, you shall not die. God knows that's just a, that's just the opposite. Actually, you know, the irony is that the serpent actually says something that's closer to the original word. Um, surely die, not surely die. It's the exact opposite, but it's using the language that Eve didn't use. And so there's a kind of an irony. It's kind of like at Jesus' temptation where the devil quotes from the Psalms. Uh it's not exactly right, but he's got a lot of things right, and it's a misquoting, or it's a, it is a misquoting. It's a twisting, but it's also a. Uh, it seems to be a, a pretty good quote of it. The devil knows the Bible, and he'll use it against you in order to get you away from it. So when the woman, saw, that's the other thing about temptation in Christianity. It's always it's attack. It's going after the things of the Lord, the words of the Lord, the liturgy of the Lord, the things, the means of grace. And he will even use the means of grace themselves to go after the means of grace. Also in temptation, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is how temptation works. We have moved from the word of God. Notice we're farther and farther away from the word, even as we talk about the word, use words to talk about the word. And then there's no talk. In verse 6, it's just narrative. We have gone from speech to sight. When the woman saw, she no longer is speaking about God's word, even, you know, incorrectly. She's not talking at all. She goes to her eyes. She saw that the tree was good. She also saw that it was um, desire to make one wise and that good for the food. So there's like, what, a bodily benefit for this. Well, that's true. It's good for food, right? And that's the same with temptation. Hey, there's a bodily benefit for this. Um, it looks good. It will benefit in some way. There's a mental or intellectual benefit. It'll make wise. So there's like an intellectual benefit from this. That might be true. That doesn't mean it's right. She took of its fruit and gave some. So this is a communal thing. He's right there. Oh, my goodness. There's a communal aspect to this as well. Adam doesn't step up. And at the same time, there is this, when one falls, there is this, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll get in on this too. And so, I mean, the husband doesn't even take the food for himself. She took of its fruit. She also gave some to her husband. He doesn't even take the food for himself. And then he eats as well. And the irony is that, yeah, the devil mixed truth with lies. Their eyes were opened. He said that their eyes would be opened. And they're naked. And this is also the story throughout the history of Christianity. When we sin, what's our gut reaction? Cover it any way you can. Fig leaves, loincloths. This is exactly what we do all the time. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, this is very nice for Christianity because the Lord our God has taken on flesh to walk in our midst in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. So instead of squashing him like a bug, he actually comes among us and seeks us out like a shepherd with lost sheep. And says, where are you? Invites the opportunity for confession. It's a question. The first recorded question. It's one word in Hebrew, actually. Where are you? The first speech after the fall. Where are you? An opportunity to confess the situation. He could just go after him. But he invites this confession through this question, which is exactly... What we do in liturgy when we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean, this is where are you at, you might say. What is your situation right now? And this is after the Lord God has chosen to draw near. They didn't ask him. They didn't invite him into their hearts. The Lord God walked in the garden. He came down and walked in the garden. He didn't stomp him, squish him like a bug, and so on. Where are you? And then it's the blame game, which is, of course, also how temptation works. You know how this goes. Have you eaten of this? And the woman you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? She says, the servant deceived me, and I ate. We are self-justifying machines. This is how we work. We must justify our actions. We must have clean hands, as it were. 
and we'll go at great lengths to make that the case. Now, have you ever wondered why we do that? Something is wrong on the inside, and we have to make it right. We just have to. Why not just do nothing with it? No, it must be made right. It must be justified in some ways. That is all testimony to the knowledge that we know there's a bigger courtroom out there. And we have to at least justify, well, there's a bigger courtroom within the self, you might say, the law written on the heart. There's a kind of 24-7 accusing or excusing going on in the conscience. There's kind of a higher courtroom within the self, but there's also the highest courtroom. And we know this. This is why we make excuses and this is why we point fingers. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice, this already says something. The Lord deals with death right away. He deals with that first. Notice he says he speaks to the serpent first. There's a bigger plan here of salvation, and I will deal with you in this way. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat. So you cause this sin of eating. And because of that, you will be reminded of this sin of eating. You will be eating dust. Dust, the thing of death. Think dust and ashes for Job and so on. Man made out of the dust. Go ahead and eat dust. Eat death. Now, you could just be squashed right here. Again, that's the other thing, too. You could squash Adam and Eve. They don't. You could also squash this serpent. He doesn't. But he does give them give him a kind of punishment that will constantly remind him of what he caused. He caused dust and ashes, mortality. And yet, at the same time, instead of just squashing him, he's, you eat death. You instrument of death, you eat death. All the days of your life, death be consumed with death. Death be defeated with death. Through death, he destroyed the one who caused death, namely the devil. And this is exactly how our Lord continues to, to work throughout the narrative of the scriptures. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, of course, is a huge, huge... I love... part. You know, one... One punishment is what he's eating dust. Death, eat death. But the other thing is, and Luther picks up on this, he makes a big deal that we don't get any proper names here. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Now, she has a name. Eventually she has a name. It'll be Eve, but she, he doesn't say Eve. And then the offspring, well, he has a name. We know this will be fulfilled in Jesus, but he doesn't say, he just says seed, literally, or offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And Luther says part of the punishment is the Lord's ambiguity here, which is great because every single time Eve has a kid and they have kids and they have kids and they have kids and they have kids, some sort of offspring, the devil knows that he will be crushed, but he doesn't know exactly which one. It just says he. (laughs) So he knows something of it. He knows the end of the story is not going to go well for him. But he doesn't know exactly who. And so every time Eve gives birth to somebody and then that person gives birth to somebody and so on and so forth, he's always wondering who is it and he's scrambling and uh, totally anxious and nervous and so on, sweating bullets because he doesn't know, but he knows it's coming. And that's part of the punishment, Luther says, of this, even in this famous promise of uh, enmity between the two and the crushing and the bruising. Now notice 
this is something that, well, again, for Luther carries on. This is, the serpent will be crushed on the cross. The heel will be bruised, but the serpent will be crushed. And yet at the same time, Paul says in Romans, the serpent will be crushed or God will soon crush Satan under your feet. There is this, it has been done and it will be done. And for Luther, he saw this enmity as not just like the enmity between the cross and the serpent, but also the enmity that exists between the serpent and all of his minions and those who follow after this offspring of Eve throughout the church of all times and places. This is our tie into Christianity in Genesis 3. The enmity that we experience, the afflictions, the persecutions, and so on, um, all are ultimately in the spiritual warfare of what the serpent is causing, and yet we know that he has been defeated. So even in the midst of whatever it is that the church, the Christian church is going through, whatever it is that individual Christians are going through, this is our hope and comfort, our promise fulfilled in Christ that he has indeed been crushed. And we hold on to that offspring of Eve no matter what the outward appearances are, knowing how the end of the story turns out, knowing that we couldn't look better in him, the victor. Lots more to say here, but that's uh, that's a quick run through the first 15 chapters of a very rich chapter. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcast, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. There, folks, we are back with our study of Genesis chapter 3. What a chapter. I mean, even just this verse that we're talking about, Genesis 3.15, what is it usually called? The Proto-Evangelion, this like first announcement of the gospel. I don't know what to do with that. I think in the beginning is a reference to Christ. And so, I mean, there's your... The proto even got the first announcement of the gospel. God creates in Christ. That's That sounds pretty gospel to me. He also is going to do a new creation. We know this through the person and work of Christ. Uh, anyway, uh, what should we say? I guess Genesis 3.15 is huge. Head and heel, I was just looking at this too. Those are also very physical bodily parts, right? Head and heel people have 
have both. So this is going to be, this is like a spiritual warfare, but also coming to expression fully in a physical way as well. And again, we know this on the cross. Well, speaking of the physical, I mean, to the woman, we have this childbearing and pain. This is kind of a law gospel thing. On the one hand, multiply your pain and childbearing. The fact that it still happens, I guess, I mean, the law is certainly, there's pain involved here. Not all childbearing will go perfectly, and we know just very sad examples of this and so on. At the same time, they will bear children still. There is a blessing, remember, be fruitful and multiply, that the Lord still upholds and and gives to them. Uh, So they will have kids, only it will involve pain. And Adam still will be able to work and so on, and yet he's going to, by the sweat of your face, eat bread and so on. And uh, so we have this kind of constant Ash Wednesday now, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return all the days of our life. And this is this is the story of the Christian church as well. It's why repentance is so central. It's why we have kind of a big deal in Lent there, Ash Wednesday. Luther's first thesis of the 95, when our Lord Jesus said repent, he willed the whole life of the Christian to be one of repentance. Uh, and so that's here as well, here in Genesis 3, also just this, I mean, Adam, you listen to the voice of your wife. It's kind of an interesting thing. He never really listened to the voice of his wife in what way. I mean, what did she say to him exactly? She was speaking to the serpent, but he was there. Was he listening as in, is there a wider sense in which he was listening? I mean, the thing is he had headship and he didn't step up. And this is also big for marriage and so on, this kind of, um, well, it's also, Adam was kind of the first priest, too. It's to neglect your God-given roles and vocations. Adam was the priest of Eden, and he and he just left the altar, as it were, that day. He's also husband to Eve, and he left his marital responsibilities of headship and so on in this in this way. Um, but here's the amazing thing, Adam then, so after the Lord says all these things, we're told that the man called his wife's name Eve. Now this is a fascinating thing. We saw Adam name some animals as well. It amazes me that, that this naming thing happens, this, and Luther's on this and I'm, I'm with it, with him on this too. And that is, it's a huge confession of what has just been said, that in their marriage, in this naming of her, in this pronouncement that the Lord just gave them, everything in life should reflect that and confess. And he starts by naming his wife Eve because Eve means life. Everything now revolves around this promised seed or offspring to come. And so he calls her Eve because she's the mother of all the the living Eve means life. In some ways, Eve is kind of a picture of the church. Later on, Revelation, she's kind of echoed at least. Uh, well, Mar- some would say Mary kind of echoes her as well, and, I, and that's all fine. She's kind of, well, even the language of woman in the Gospels, I think is very churchly language, bride of Christ kind of language. Um, but anyway, she's kind of this, this is the life of the church, the Christian church of all times and places. We confess the one in the bosom of the church, the one in the midst of the church who stands, and that is the offspring of Eve, the offspring, the 
the one who will go to marry the woman of the church, the one who is the head of the church in the midst of the church, standing, walking, and so on, in the flesh, in body and blood, in the midst of the church, um, granting life. And so it's no wonder why in the early church uh, they would say things like, God will have no one call him father who will not have the church as mother. The church as the mother of all the living, you might say, in that sense. The Lord God made Adam for his... Here's another thing, too. The Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They were not clothed properly by just doing what you do to hide behind your sins. Fig leaves, loincloths, all the emphasis on how we cover ourselves, hide ourselves, justify ourselves. And it is also skin, a death had to take place, you might say, for them to be clothed properly. This is going to be huge. Uh, of course, we are clothed in Christ in baptism. And this is what the Lord God does for us, something he freely gives to us, something he made for us. He brought this about, these garments, and he's the one that also clothed us. Think Luther called and brought me to the gospel, enlightened me with his gift, and clothed me with his special garments of salvation. This last little bit, we'll end here. We're getting close to our time. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Dash. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so I guess first things first is, I mean, the devil was right in a couple ways. Your eyes will be open, and their eyes were opened, only in a terrible way, to see their sin and shame. He also said that you'll be like God, and God himself says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And so there is this, again, the mixing of truth with lies. I mean, God said that's, that's the case, only he knows good and evil in the sense that he's become evil. He's participated in evil. He's, you, you can't know it. You're not knowing it in the sense that God knows it in a way that he, he transcends it, as it were, has it in his command and power and providential ordering. He, he knows man knows good and evil and that he's become it. You are evil because of what you've done here. And yet this is a gracious thing uh, to ban them from this tree of life, to be, uh, you might say, confirmed in this fallen state. The thing that's amazing, I think Luther's right again, and I think I th when he saw this, I think he's right, and that is they what they have in Eve, this promised descendant to come, is even better than what they lost in Eden, the tree of life and all the paradise there. Close that off and think about, pray about, focus on, confess the one, the promised seed to come from the offspring of Eve, from Eve. And so this is, this is huge. I think this is also, and that and at the same time, it's kind of, a, Eden is sort of a little temple. There's been lots of studies on this, and old Jewish interpretation is kind of reflected on this. Eden as a little garden of, I mean, later on, the tabernacle, the temple, the palm trees, and it kind of like this Edenic flavor to it. Adam has the, you know, the high priestly garments 
right? They get garment. Adam's like the priest. And then, well, also you just get this uh, in the east of the garden. That's where the entrance, we talked about the east, I think, right? The east is the entrance to the tabernacle. The east is the entrance to the temple. And the east is the direction of salvation. Um, God takes care of the plagues from east wind, this east, east, east. Sunrise is in the east. It's the direction of salvation. So there's, there, at the same time, there is this kind of like paradise has been closed, this flaming sword and so on, and yet there's a new paradise that will soon be opened by this offspring of Eve, a tabernacle, a temple, a church whose entrance is in the east, as in through the one who is the resurrection. Think again, this rising sun, this new day, this eighth day, this resurrection day. The entrance to this new paradise is not this, this uh, the Garden of Eden that was lost, but it is the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of uh, the Empty Tomb, the Garden of the New Heaven and the New Earth. And Jesus himself says, I am the gate. You enter through the east. You enter. No one enters except through me to this new heaven, new earth, in which there will be a new tree of life with healing for the nations, the tree of his cross, and the healing that wipes away every tear from all faces into eternity. Great stuff here in Genesis 3. We're going to keep going with this Christianity in Genesis uh, with Cain and Abel next time. Kind of a fascinating narrative. Stay tuned. Tell your friends. Uh, so they, too, can learn more about God's Word with us. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. 